Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network. And today I am here with Cornelia Maud Spellman, who is the author of Missing, a memoir. Cornelia, thanks for being here with me today. So nice to be with you. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, Could you start with talking a little bit about why you wrote this memoir, why you wanted to sort of explore your family and in particular your mother? Yeah, I really wanted to know, Rebecca, what happened to that lovely young woman whose picture you see, you know, on the cover. That's my mother at the age of 16. And she was she was smart and nice and intelligent, and she had a lot of uh, energy and vivacity, so I'm told, so I found out. But by the time she was 62, she had smoked herself to death. And she was very sick for 10 years before that. So those 10 years, and I was 28 when she died. So those 10 years of my life from 18 to 28 were so taken up by this unfolding, really kind of slow suicide. And um, it was very sad, very wrenching. And there were other problems going on in the family too. But I wanted to go back. I think what I wanted to do was resurrect that young woman. I wanted to find out who my mother was before she got so sick and what had happened to her. What happened that she ended up in such a sad way? And the only way I could really do that, she was an only child, and there weren't any siblings to talk to. The only way I could really do it was to to do research. And it's interesting, before we get into really talking a bit more about your mother and what you found, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why it's, your mother was not um, a famous person. She was your mother, right? Like, right. Um, but it's so important to continue to tell these stories and to keep these stories going. And so can you talk a little bit about that and um, what you kind of found or learned or why you told the story beyond just for you, right? You found it, you have children, you could tell this too, but why it was really important to let other people hear this story as well. Yeah, that's it. It's a great question because I think that's the point. Uh, of what I was writing, that is to understand for each of us how much our parents and our ancestors affect us, affect our own lives, and how losses and griefs from previous generations continue to affect us. And they can could affect us in a healthier way than most of them do, because if people are helped to understand and talk about and process what happens to them, then, you know, there's a healthy lesson in it. But when it's repressed or it's secret or it's covered up and the pain is never expressed, it causes problems. And my mother's problems obviously caused problems for me, even if it was only heartache and it was beyond heartache because it also affected my children and my life. And each of us has these stories in our family. It was, certainly wasn't just my mother's story. 
of losses, whether it's divorce, death, uh, an immigration, um, an absence, uh, crime, you know, all sorts of things in the background that families tend not to talk about. And in my mother's generation, she was born in 1911, people didn't routinely talk about things the way they do now. And the fact that I became a psychotherapist and worked with people to understand psychological processes and development was no accident, I'm sure. It's because of the problems in my own family and in my own life that I wanted to understand, both for myself and for other people, how to be healthy and how to have a healthy life. And health in the largest sense, you know, not just physical health, but mental health, was what my mother did not have and what I really wanted to have for myself, and I really wanted to provide for my own children. So your story also tells, I think, this larger story of women, and, and you're talking about sort of women's health and women's wellness, but just sort of um, what it meant to, and what it still means kind of to be a woman. So your mother, can you tell us a little bit about sort of your mother's early life um, and she grew up in Iowa and a little bit about that and what you kind of learned about her early. Let's start with her early life. Well, luckily, I had some diaries of hers, which gave me her actual voice when she was uh, 10 for a while. She kept a diary. And then when she was 14. And so I had that sense and her description of places and people and uh, I went to Iowa and looked things up in Iowa. And she she was, it's a very American, early American story of this particular kind of American, uh, a white woman in America, um, because she, her grandparents had really been pioneers in Iowa. And it was, it was a, a period in history when girls were really not expected to do very much. And, her, although her mother was a teacher of handwriting and art, which was rather genteel for a woman. <laughs> and um, my mother was very smart and she she went to the University of Illinois. She graduated when she was only 16 from high school. And she went to the University of Illinois where she met my father and also met William Maxwell, the the writer and and longtime editor at the New Yorker magazine, which is a, was just another fun part of the story for me because he was able to tell me more about what she was like when she was young. But I think she was somebody who who well, she says in one of her diaries that a teacher said, "You have a fine mind and know how to use it." She was proud of her intelligence, and she wanted to do things. She wanted to sort of be more a citizen of the world than the average Iowa girl, I guess, wanted to. But it didn't work out that way. And I say it didn't work out that way. She didn't work it out that way. One of the things I really see so plainly, and this is a women's issue today, as well as it was then, is the whole question of agency. Who who makes these things happen? These things didn't just happen to mother. You know, she made these choices that were not so great. She made a choice to have five children and she didn't have three. So she had eight pregnancies. Well, birth control was available to her, 
why didn't she use it? I once asked her why she had five children. And she said, because she'd been an only child. And she thought that was very lonesome. It's not the greatest reason to have five children. You could have two and not have somebody be lonesome. But she kind of by these choices, she cut off all the possible avenues of another sort of life she could have had. And the sort of life I think that would have really made her happy was the life of a writer and a teacher or professor or intellectual, because that's what she was. Well, and you write like there's one point where you talk about her writing letters to Nixon and, and putting um, a display on the back of the car uh, as how many people had died during the Vietnam War. So she seemed to have this this spirit of activism or this spirit um, that wanted more. And so and that kind of wrestle, you seem to wrestle with that throughout. Well, it's something of a puzzle because I admired that about her. And she helped integrate a church that she was part of when we were still in Ohio. And that was in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. That was pretty unusual to have an integrated church because it was, it was all white and all black. Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio was really a southern kind of city. So I admired that about her. But she only seemed able to muster that towards outside forces and not be able to bring about changes in her own life. And some of it was this belief she seemed to have that a woman must just follow her husband and he was the most important. She didn't really think that. I mean, when she finally read um, the first feminist book, she threw it. I, I've forgotten the title. I'm sorry. I've reached that age. <laughs> the Feminist Mystique. Betty Friedan's <laughs> yeah. book. She she threw it at my father, you know, sort of as a joke, but threw it at him across the room and said, I'd like to come over there and punch you right in the nose. <laughs> Feminine mystique. <laughs> because that's that's what a new idea it was to her. And yet, and yet the superintendent of schools in her Iowa school district was Carrie Chapman Catt, who was one of the founders of the right to vote and of what eventually became the League of Women Voters. And um you know, she she did have some role models, but she chose this domestic life or let herself, you know, become part of this domestic life. And she really wasn't very well suited to be a mother. She had very little experience with children. And while she loved us, um, she was she was not demonstrative. I appreciated the fact that she wasn't judgmental. She wasn't ever mean but she wasn't very interested in me, at least, by the time, you know, she came around to me. And that was very hurtful, of course. But her her own mother had been her own mother had been, you know, going back to the intergenerational aspects of families. Her mother had been very cold and only had one child, whether it was by choice or not. I don't know. But she did not apparently like children because. She was alive till I was 21, and I only met her about two times, three times. She was not interested in the grandchildren. And my mother wrote her a letter, which I think is in missing, you know, saying how hurt she was that her mother didn't want to be part of the family and see the grandchildren and stuff. But my grandmother did not want to be called grandmother. We had to call her corny. She didn't want to be called grandmother. So, I mean, that says everything. If somebody doesn't want to be even called grandma or grandmother. Yeah. And you brought up that intergenerational aspect. And I thought that was really interesting that you had 
so many letters, so much um, that was written back and forth between them and, and showing just to be able to show that relationship um, and in some ways, the lack of relationship and the struggle that your mother had with her mother and how that sort of continued on. But think of what I don't have. You know, think of all the letters that were lost. I mean, that kind of haunts me at times because there must have been so many letters between my grandmother and grandfather, for instance, that the man who who died when my mother was seven unexpectedly and he was only 40 years old. It was a very sudden, tragic loss and um the letters that he and my grandmother must have written and all the family letters you know i only have a few um which makes me sad because i don't know where they are i don't know what happened to them but you're right i do have more than a lot of people and a lot of photographs which is also really helpful and the fact that i had three diaries of my mother's that was amazing to read those. I had them all around for years and was never the least bit interested in them. I think you have to reach a certain point in your life, a certain age. And I started working on on this book when I was 50. And it just took me forever because it was such a long and interesting, you know, it's not that I minded taking the time. It was an emotional and psychological journey to understand all this because I had to find out, for instance, the story of the death of my mother's father. She she never told me any of that. Would she have if she had lived longer? I don't know. I don't really think so because she she didn't talk about things that bothered her, which is why I became somebody who helped others and learned myself to talk to people about one's problems, to share them. And that's how healing helps. That's how healing happens is by connecting to other people and sharing pain. There's nothing you can do about somebody else's pain, but sharing it is a huge gift to be able to sit with somebody. And the I'm, I'm writing a subsequent memoir, which is related in some ways to this. And the first part of it is a very long letter that I wrote to my mother long after she died, which has a very different feel from the somewhat distant feeling I'm able to project in, in Missing, where I talk directly to her about how much I wish that she could have sat, we could have sat at the kitchen table together, and she could have told me and cried about what happened to her. Because it wasn't just her father's death. The other really several awful things that happened to her is that her oldest son disappeared, my oldest brother, and that worst of all, that my father dumped her in a nursing home at the end of her life and went after her best friend. Her, her her close, very rich friend, he was after her money. So my father, though he had many charming characteristics, was very lacking in character and ultimately really lacking in loyalty. And he, he betrayed mother. I understood in a way why he wanted to be in love with somebody else. Well, of course, it did. she did have to be rich. So that was not understandable. That was not at all likable. But I could understand that after having a wife who was sick for a long time, you know, that he would want to have another life. It's just the way he went about it. She was alive. You know, he could have waited a little bit. So there was a lot to straighten out in my mind. 
Well, and you know, and you sort of answered one of the questions I had with like that idea of why you went looking for this, like, you know, what was going on. And you talk a little bit about um, being at a place in your life where you felt you could do this. But another thing is, as you started to sort of investigate and look at this, there were some concerns that you had about your mother's death and, and your mother being put into the nursing home and, and sort of health and wellness. And so can you talk about what that was like, sort of going through that process and uncovering some of that information and, and thinking through that? Well, she had accused my oldest brother, who by this time had, it's a long story, but by this time he was living in the house with them and paying back a debt that he, he had been caught embezzling money from a business he worked for. And they let him, or so the story was, they let him pay off the debt. And so he was working and living in the house with my parents. But my mother accused him of trying to kill her. And my father relayed this over the telephone. And I, I, I didn't know what to think of it. I really wasn't very alarmed because I thought it couldn't possibly be true. I thought that she was so sick that... She was imagining things, and that indeed may have been the truth. There's no real way to know. But 25 years after she died, and after I then knew that he had waited around, my brother had waited around to get her inherit the inheritance he knew he would get, married another woman, and disappeared again, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe he did really try to kill her. Well, if he had really tried... Um, in a way, being in the nursing home would have prevented that from happening. But that wasn't why she was put there. She was put there, so far as I could see, because uh, my father felt he couldn't manage with her at home anymore. Well, I later realized in looking at it that she didn't really need nursing home care. My father simply didn't want to take care of her. In fact, that's why he let my brother live in the house, because then he could leave her with my brother and go off after this woman. So how terrible was that? But really, Rebecca, at the time, I don't, I wasn't aware of it the way I'm telling it to you now. You know, I still, I was so much younger, and I still believed in my father, and I believed that he was, uh, uh, I didn't believe he was somebody who would do something so when I say it, it sounds so harsh. I didn't believe that he would actually do that, even though it was kind of in front of my face. I felt like I could understand that he loved this woman who was a very nice woman. I, I loved her too. I had known her for a long time and she was a very nice person. So I had this benign interpretation of things and I was young enough that I really, I wasn't mature enough to judge all these things for myself. And once I judged them, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I don't know if you know the book by Alice Miller, um, The Drama of the Gifted Child or Betrayal of, I forget the, that part of the title. Sorry, forgot the, a word again. But she was a German psychoanalyst who wrote about the necessity for mental health, for people to understand truly the reality of who their parents are. And that most of us don't manage to do that because it's just too painful to say, gosh, my father was uh, a rogue. You know, my father lacked character. My father was a lot like the brother. You know, he, he betrayed my mother. He wanted money. He went after women for their money. Most people don't want to say that. 
And it's not pleasant to say, but it's the reality. There are other realities about him. You know, there are other good things about him, but that's part of the truth. And I think that to be healthy, we have to really understand the truth of who our parents are. And it's not that we have to be angry forever or or that we have to forgive everything. You know, it's a question of accepting this is the reality. So then what are you going to do with the reality? Right. By the you... time I wrote, of course, my father was dead, too. So. But yeah, you did this. I don't know. I mean, as in talking about, I don't know if nice is the word I want to use, but I will use it. Um, but this nice job of kind of showing the those those multiple sides to your family, you. right? And thinking Thank about you. that. And and you also you did a lot of in investigation into those missing pieces. And and one thing that um I really loved is that this is a memoir, it's a written memoir, but there's also photographs throughout. And some of those photographs help you tell that story. And some of them sort of, you know, you have pictures of the, uh, you know, a diary page or that kind of thing. So could you talk a, a little bit about that kind of investigating that you did? And then maybe we can talk about how you kind of used images to tell some of the story or to highlight and support some of the story. Yes, I appreciate that question because the images are of things that you might call heirlooms or mementos or, or legacies. And each of us has these in our family, not anything necessarily of monetary value, but objects that can open doors for us to stories about the past. One in particular, although it's not actually, uh, there's not actually a photograph of it in the book, but the um, name tag, the name plate, sorry, not the brass nameplate that was on my grandfather, Sam Schneider's desk in Iowa. Um, my mother kept that for years and she kept it near her and she had a silver framed photograph of him that she always kept near her. And so I knew without her having to say anything that this was very important to her because she didn't even have pictures of us that she kept in her bedroom close to her. And I once asked her about him and she said oh he would have loved you so and i felt oh somebody would have loved me so just how wonderful but where isn't it sad that he died but i i never talked to her about it she never talked about it um but there are other objects like a silver spoon which in fact i just used this morning again that has my grandmother Corny's name on it that was made in Iowa. She had a kind of collection of silver spoons, I think, that they were given for like a graduation present or a birthday present. Um, pieces of paper, uh, drawings, photographs, um, pieces of clothing. You know, I have a dress of, of my mother's from when she was a little girl in 1911. I actually had her wedding dress, which was not a white wedding dress. It was a, a, she was married in 1932 and it was a, a, a silk sort of evening dress. And um, somebody in the family actually did, did use that once, but these, these items are so uh, resonant. They have such an emotional charge, so many of them. And most of them have a story behind them. What was the story behind that nameplate? Oh, you know, huge, a huge story. The fact that she kept that as some 
it meant something to her because it's one of the few things. I mean, what what happened to all his other things? I don't know. There was an inventory, and I have a photograph of that in the book, an inventory that I found in Iowa of their possessions that had to be made because he died intestate, in other words, without a will. And so the court had to list all of their possessions, which was wonderful for me because I could see that they owned, you know, what they owned and what their house was like in those days. Well, and you learned that the house also had some significance, um, right? Like there are these fast, right? There's these things which I love, you know, reading, we often, you know, read, like I said before, like we read these stories of quote unquote famous people, but everybody has these really fascinating bits of life. So like, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what you found out about the house that she lived in and the house that your grandmother built? It's kind of (laughs) thrilling, Rebecca, because- Yes, each of us has these stories, and you never know when somebody in your family um, has an intersection with something in history that is of interest. In this case, this house was built by Walter Burley Griffin, and he was Frank Lloyd Wright's acolyte at one point, but as famous, really, as Frank Lloyd Wright. And the house, you know, the house was built probably because of my grandmother, Corny, because she was the artistic one, and she had an eye for this. And my grandfather was a banker in this little town, little city in Iowa, and everything was going to be wonderful. And they were building this beautiful house. And, and because it was a historical house, it was still there. And so I was able to go to it and walk through it. And I have a picture in the book of the view from the room that must have been my mother's room, which was a very beautiful room because the the, the, those houses were built so that the light would pass through the rooms at a certain time of day. I mean, this is the kind of thing he thought about. And not only he, by the way, speaking of women, his wife, Marianne Mahoney Griffin, was as talented and didn't get as much credit because she did a lot of the design of this stuff too and a lot of design of the interior. So I could go in and look at the fireplace, which was very beautiful tiled fireplace that I knew she had designed and think about my mother sitting there in front of the fire and also think about my grandfather's funeral because I had found all the information in the newspaper archives because it was a big story when he died because he had been a banker in this town and it was an up-and-coming town and he was so young and nobody expected him to die and all those things that it, it you know it made me realize that if I were a teacher of history in another life which I probably would like to do that's the way to learn history is through your own family because you become it becomes so alive to you. World War I became of such interest to me because he died, my, my grandfather died in 1918, not from the war, but on the most recent Veterans Day, I thought as I do every year, ah, on this day, November 11th, 1918, my grandfather was still alive. My mother was a little girl. Everything was happy. How happy they must have been that the war was over. And he didn't, he actually only had, a, you know, another 10 days or so to live. Uh, but they didn't know that because he had a ruptured appendix is how he died. And then, by the way, I had a ruptured appendix when I almost ruptured when I was seven. And that was another strange, really almost synchronicity sort of event because I had a dream or perhaps something from the anesthesia of him because I could have died also from that appendix. It was gangrenous. 
And isn't that odd that that would happen? There's another further part to that story. <laughs> going you know i i can talk forever sorry <laughs> no you're good well you also um what i i love too was that in the in the sort of investigation in the research you did it was not only making connections with your family but you would meet um people who knew your like who's one the one woman who knew your grandfathers like her father and your grandfather were like the best of friends or or grandfather right like so there's all these like sort of connections that you make and even um when you talk about the um i am the new yorker editor who's i'm blanking i'm blanking on the name Right, like you, you made that connection. <laughs> so can you talk, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that experience and how you sort of start to see and make those connections because of this work. That was wonderful. That was a wonderful connection because I had heard William Maxwell's name spoken many times when I was growing up because my parents had these literary ambitions and they got the New Yorker. And I used to read the New Yorker magazine, not read it. I used to look at the pictures lying on my stomach, you know, looking at the pictures of, and I remember thinking, wow, what a different world New York was. There were all these advertisements for fur coats and all these fancy things, very distant from our life in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so when I had the chance to meet him through my husband, who was editing, a, my husband is a writer and, and teacher, like you, a teacher, and a, was editing a literary magazine. And he had reason to contact William Maxwell. And I said, oh, tell him, tell him that you're married to Elizabeth and Norman Spellman's daughter. And the answer was our invitation to tea with William Maxwell when we went to New York. And he opened the door and he told me later that he loved me at first sight, which was I have to say, very typical of William Maxwell. Everybody loves him, and he says the most beautiful, charming things to people. So, But, of course, I was thrilled. And what he meant was that he could see both my parents' faces in mine, and he hadn't seen them since they were, what, 20 years old. And I was 36 when I met him, so I was older by far. And he was 76, which is how old I now am. And I thought he was very old. My father was dying at that time, at the age of 76. So Bill was able to give back to me a portrait in words by talking to me about what my parents had been like. And again, I was coming from this very sad side. My father was dying. My mother had been dead for 10 years. Their lives did not seem very fulfilling. Um, And Bill remembered them as this wonderful couple. My father was so handsome. He was so charming. He was very funny. He was very funny. That was one of the good things about my father. And my mother, he said, was more vivid than other girls. The way certain tropical birds are vivid. That was William Maxwell's wonderful description of my mother. And so uh, Bill and I wrote, and we saw him a number of times over the next number of years until at 92, I saw him, you know, shortly before he died. And I had been telling him in letters and sometimes when I would see him, all this work I was doing on my mother's life, he didn't really always want to hear it because he didn't really want to know, you know, back to the idea of how much truth can you take in somebody that you love. 
he'd been very fond of my father and my mother, and he didn't want to really know these unsavory details, but that was the truth. And his wife, Emmy, who was also a lovely person, said, Cornelia, it's important for people to know. It's education of the heart. People need to know, you know, the truth of these situations. And um, so he was, Bill was a kind of parent to me. Uh, I think he was a kind of parent to many people and a, a very, like a lighthouse. You know, he was, he was somebody that was, that gave me something that was only good and a different, very different model of a man than my father had been. So you collect all these, this, you, you write, you, you've been writing this book for 20 some years, right? You collect all this material and you've decided to, um, donate this work and so can you talk a little bit about um where you're donating this um and um why well, you're doing that that's the most wonderful surprise because um i have also i've been writing a diary for 41 years a daily diary so I, i'm now writing volume 252 and my mother had these three diaries and i had all these family papers letters photographs and by chance, I learned about the Schlesinger Library on the history of women in America, which is uh, part of Harvard, part of Radcliffe Institute, it's called, in Cambridge. And I wrote them and said, I have these papers, these family papers uh, about the women in my family and some men, but mostly the women. Would you be interested? And by the way, I write diaries too. And I would really love to be able to donate to the diary. Di to the library, those diaries, I had looked up, I think, and seen that they do have a big collection of diaries of both ordinary women and unusual women like Amelia Earhart. I don't know that they have her diary, but they have those kinds of papers there, both, but it's for ordinary women. It's a, it's for the history of women. And a year went by before I happened to get a reply one day, an email saying, I'm sorry, the curator had been away for medical reasons. We'd love to have everything. And I went, oh, my goodness, not only is there a permanent place for all this for my mother and for her voice in those diaries, but for my own, which are closed, my my diaries are closed until the year 2070, but mothers and all the other papers are open for anybody who wants to do research at the Schlesinger. And it was the most perfect ending that there could be because it was a way of delivering this person, my mother, that I was able to resurrect in a way, as she had been, to deliver her to the library because her voice will speak. I mean, women who write diaries, and there's so many of us who do, um, our voices speak through time. And it's not, it's different from an, uh, from a biography, for sure. It's the actual voice of the person. And a lot of us women have only had diaries to talk to. I have several books, and you you may have seen them, about uh, pioneer women who wrote in their diaries. I write on my lap while a wagon's rocking. I mean, how much more direct can you be than that, right? Think of these. Or they, you know, they wrapped up a woman who had died in childbirth. They wrapped her up in a comforter with her baby and buried her by the side of the road. This is her story, right? This is her story as opposed to history. This is 
out of the mouths of the women who settled our country. Some of the women who settled. Yes, right. And so your mother gets that space to like, her story gets to be told, right? Yes. So, I mean, we could talk forever, but I'm going to ask you my final question I always ask. Um, So, what are you, and you sort of alluded to this, um, what you're working on now, or um, so it's your last, if you have anything you want to plug, so whether whatever you're working on now, or if there's anything with missing um, that you want to sort of promote, um, what's happening? I think two things I'd like to say. One is this new memoir that I'm working on, which is about the importance of listening and talking. It's a kind of epistolary memoir in letters for the most part and also another children's book which i have a a dedicated colleague who's been trying to find a home for it um and it's about children this is for young children it's about how do we know what's true and i so hope as does my colleague that we can find a home for that book so if there's anybody listening who is interested how do they get in touch with me? Through my website, I guess, corneliaspellman.com. Yeah. Well, Cornelia, it's been wonderful talking with you. Again, Cornelia Maud Spellman, who's the author of Missing a Memoir. Thank you for talking with me for New Books Network. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was a pleasure. <laughs>